0: Why don't we open with a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we do thank you that you have uh, called us to gather as your people today. Thank you uh, for this congregation, uh, the uh, joy-filled hearts of so many of the people here, and their desire to learn and to know your ways. I pray that in this morning's Sunday school lesson, your spirit would be upon us, that you'd use us, this lesson to strengthen our faith and our understanding of your word, that we might uh, faithfully follow you in all life. We pray this. In Christ's precious name, and everyone said, "Amen." So, uh, I was a math, middle school math teacher for about ten years. For those of you who weren't aware of that, and one of the things that I discovered in being a middle school math teacher that I became very frustrated with elementary school math teachers. And if you've taught middle school math, you probably know what I'm talking about. Middle school or even high school math, because. Elementary math teachers are notorious for lying to their students. They say things like, you can never subtract a bigger number from a smaller number. And then there's also all sorts of implied lies, like uh, just that the equal sign is just a a fancy way of saying, and the answer is uh, another common one, a little bit more abstract that some of you might argue with me with. With is that multiplication is just repeated addition. Okay, that one's a little bit more out there. If you're interested in that one, talk to me later. But the point is that as a middle school math teacher, I found myself continually bumping up against things that students had been taught in elementary school that I had to kind of reshape and reshift and unteach them so that they could adequately understand the math that I was trying to teach to them. And that can be very, very difficult for a student who for years had had a certain idea ingrained into their mind, and then for me to say, that's wrong. This is how you should really think about it. And so this morning we are talking about God's sovereignty and human freedom. And while my hope is that those of you who have been raised in this church have not had that experience with the teachings on this and I can say, actually, those of you who have been raised in this church should not have had an experience of being mistaught on this. I know that we have a very mixed church and a lot of people who have come here from a variety of different backgrounds and different evangelical churches. And I will say that in evangelicalism is, in general, there is a lot of, at very least, fuzzy teaching around God's sovereignty in this world and how it relates to human freedom, if not outright uh, Uh, Direct and unbiblical teaching on the topic. And so I think as a church, it is important that we uh, have very clear expressions of this teaching on a regular basis uh, to make sure that we're thinking clearly about these topics. For those of you who are raised in other churches and and had some of those things, those categories, that for years were drilled into your head and that you have to reshape, this is for you. And for those of you who are raised in this church, hopefully I can speak clearly articulately on this matter, so that if you're having conversations with other people, you have an a accessible and reasonable framework for presenting the biblical position on this topic, and that is God's sovereignty and human freedom. And today's lesson is going to be framed around the question, are they compatible? Now this is a lesson on the fourth chapter of Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, which is what we are studying for our book studies right now. And so I'm really basing most of what this morning's lesson is on from the fourth chapter. Those of you who are in book studies, you've already gathered, you've already read that chapter, and you've already discussed it, so you'll see a lot of overlap with what Bridges uh, talks about in that chapter. And so just to put this chapter in context very briefly, uh, the book, again, is called Trusting God. And in chapter one of that book, Bridges lays out... Uh, just kind of the premise of the book, and this idea of, of trusting God, especially in life's most difficult circumstances. And he says that there are three things that a believer must believe about God to be able to truly and adequately trust in God in all life circumstances. That is, one must believe that God is completely sovereign, one must believe that God is infinite in wisdom, and one must believe that God is perfect in love as well. And we are in the section of the book where he's addressing the first of those, that God is completely sovereign, which is what he covers through chapter, in chapters 2 through 7. Uh, last week, Elder Anderson uh, taught on chapter 3, in which Bridges lays out kind of the big picture of God's sovereignty. And you'll see some overlap in that today, but with a greater level of focus on how, if God is utterly and completely sovereign over everything that ever happens, how does that leave any space for humans to make genuine, true decisions of their own. So that's what, what today's focus will be, again, specifically looking at the question, are they compatible? And so I, this will be broken down into uh, really three part, four parts today. We'll briefly look at God's sovereignty first, then we'll look at the idea of human freedom, and then we're going to talk about how they work together and then conclude with some uh, implications and applications of this teaching. So to begin with, as we talk about these things, sometimes the, the conversation, the debate, the discussion is framed in terms of God's sovereignty and human freedom. Uh, sometimes... Hmm. That is very frustrating. Why did that question mark end up going way over there? It's supposed to be smack dab in the middle. Whatever. <laughs> Sometimes the conversation is framed in terms of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But for anybody out there who these labels seem a little bit fuzzy, here's what we're essentially talking about. How is it that God ordains all things that come to pass, or if it's true that God ordains all things that come to pass, can it also be true that humans truly make decisions for themselves? So in beginning to talk about this idea of God's sovereignty, that he uh, ordains all things that come to pass, I think it will be helpful to lay out three essential views on how people think of God interacting with the world. One of them is distinctly unchristian and unbiblical, which I will call the deist view. The second view I'm going to talk about is the interventionist view. It's a label I made up to describe a common perspective that I think I would call inconsistently Christian. I don't think it's a biblical position. I think a lot of Christians hold it. And if they followed it through logically and consistently, it would lead to unchristian outcomes. Fortunately, many people who hold this position are inconsistent. Uh, But I think you'll see what I mean by that in a minute. And the last uh, view I would like to, I struggle with what to call it. I wanted to call it the the biblical view at first, which I do think it is, and I wanted to call it the reformed view, which I think reformed expresses it most uh, typically. But I think actually the word determinist, as long as we properly understand that term, is going to be the best word to describe the third view. So what are these three positions? Uh, well, if you've ever studied, studied the early American founding era, this labeled deist comes up a lot. People say there were a lot of deists during that time, although a lot of people get labeled deists that weren't truly deists. Benjamin Franklin is oftentimes called a deist. I don't think he, that's the best description of him, because here's what a deist is. They believe that there is a creator God who created all things, but that God essentially after creating it just stood back and let creation, including all of humanity, run its own course. God doesn't intervene. He doesn't get involved. He just stands back and watches. This has also often been equated with God being a watchmaker. That is that God wound up the watch. He set everything in place and then let it go. And this, again, this view I think is completely unscriptural. I think if someone confessionally holds to a position like this, this person is not a Christian. The interventionist view also believes that God created all things. This view also sees in Scripture that God has all power, that God is omnipotent, that he can do all things. But not only can God do all things, that God has the authority to do all things. In this view, well, if you say that God is sovereign, this is what they mean. That God has the, all power and all authority. God can intervene with the created world in any way and at any time that he wants to. But God only intervenes. It's similar to the deist in that they, they largely think that God kind of created the world and was let it go, but they do believe that God intervenes here and there as needed. There will be different ways that this is expressed, different degrees of intervention that they believe in. But that God intervenes as necessary to accomplish his purposes. These people read scripture, they see that God's purposes will eventually come about, that God, God's plans will be fulfilled. But they believe he does that not by being utterly sovereign over all things that happen, but by just intervening as necessary to make his will occur. Most of this view is based, it comes from a desire to, A, protect God, from being the author of evil or from, uh, or from being the author of sin. They, so they want to guard God's goodness and God's holiness. They also want to uh, use uh, this to guard a certain view of human freedom. I think those are good desires. We have to uphold the fact that God is not evil. There's no evil in God. Absolutely. You also want to affirm that God is not the author of sin, We also want to affirm that there is human freedom. But I will argue this morning, the interventionist view is not how we guard those things and that it is possible to have a determinist view and also protect those things that are upheld in Scripture. So what is the determinist view? The determinist view also believes that God created all things and that God has all power and that God has all authority but also that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, that God decrees all things and that anything that has ever taken place in all of the history of creation, the smallest move in Adam was foreordained by God to come to pass. So in other words, everything happens by God's sovereign hand. So like I said, there's other views that the word determinist has some bad baggage, There is naturalistic determinism, which is not what I'm saying here. Naturalistic determinism says that everything has a natural cause. So there are some philosophers, I believe uh, David Hume would have held something like this, that everything has a naturalistic cause that you can... um, Well, I'm not going to get too far into it. If you know what I'm talking about when I say naturalistic determinism, that's not what I mean here. Some will describe the the Calvinistic or Reformed understanding of determinism as soft determinism, uh, and that's because of where I'm going to, later to say that this view of determinism doesn't undermine a certain notion of human freedom. So our three views, the deist one I'm going to set aside for today, and there's going to be some interaction around some Bible verses uh, between the interventionist and the determinist view as we move forward. So, uh, again, this morning I'm uh, defending the determinist view, and I think we- this is our confessional position at our church. Westminster Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1, reads, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So there we see this. Everything is part of God's sovereign is a result of God's sovereignly work in this world. And like I said, I was tempted to call it the Reformed view, but R.C. Sproul has helped me on this position. And R.C. Sproul said that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass from all eternity is not uniquely Reformed theology. Now, I would say, while that's true, I think Reformed theology has done the best job, though, at consistently applying this truth. Okay, but I think Sproul is right, that people, uh, that, well, let's see where he goes from there. He he goes on to say, rather, it is a doctrine that expresses, that is expressed in classical Jewish orthodoxy, Muslim orthodoxy, and Christian orthodoxy with respect to the nature of God. All of it, all this does is affirm theism. It affirms that God is sovereign. So what he... Sproul here is saying that, that the idea that God is sovereign over all things is essential to a consistent view of God being God. I was discussing this with my boys at school, asking why, why would this be a case? If you, if you deny God's utter and complete sovereignty over all things, why would that undermine the entire notion of God being God? I was really impressed. One of my eighth graders came back with the following response. He said, well, if there was something else out there over which God was not sovereign, did not exercise his complete sovereign rule, that thing would somehow have power over God. And if God is the one who has the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, then that thing that has some other ability... Or some power to do something outside of God's will would then become God. He actually said it much better than I just said it there. Okay. Uh, but the point is, what, what ends up devolving? And if you think that God is not utterly sovereign, you end up devolving into a system called monism or oneism. If you've ever had an opportunity to listen to Dr. Peter Jones... He, that he's really big on this. He talks about it a lot, and he really th- sees like an emerging paganism in our culture. And he says, all paganism and really most world religions devolve into form of oneism. That, belie- that is that the Christian view is a two-ism view. There is God. And those of you who are with me in youth group know this. I get talk about this all the time. There is God, and there is everything else. That is our view of reality. There is God, and then there's everything else which he created and which he rules over. Oneism say, or monism says that there is one reality, one closed reality. So even if people within that mindset or that frame of understanding believe in God, they believe God is part of this fixed, enclosed system of reality. Think Sproul, even though he doesn't talk about oneism or monism here, I think what he's saying that is if you reject God's sovereignty, that he rules over all things, you end up losing theism altogether. To finish his quote, if in some sense God does not ordain everything that comes to pass, he is not really sovereign. If he is not sovereign, he cannot be God. If we self-consciously reject the sovereignty of God, we are rejecting the very nature of God and are not entitled to the term theist. So I guess the application there is if you have friends who aren't necessarily reformed or in confessionally reformed, churches, I think that this is still like an important conversation to be having uh, with them, uh, because it under, if you reject God's complete sovereignty, you're questioning whether you can even truly and consistently believe in God at all. So most importantly, though, I've talked about the philosophers, I've talked about our confession, I've talked about Dr. Sproul, but most importantly, is This scriptural. So we're going to look at a few verses on God's sovereignty, but Elder Anderson did this much more thoroughly last month, so I'm only going to spend a little bit of time here. But specifically, I'd like to look at this through the lens of the compatibilist versus the determinist. Okay, Because it is interesting that there are a lot of verses that you can see how the interventionist could read this according to their theological framework, and the determinist would read the verse very differently. So Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So the determinist, when he reads this, he says the purpose of the Lord is all circumstances, everything. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And what is that? That is in all things, God's way will be the way that things go. And yet the interventionist, conventionalists will read this that the the plan uh, that the purposes of the lord they think of that in kind of like the final outcome so god's not necessarily in control of all the details but that the purposes of the lord will eventually prevail god will intervene enough just enough to make sure that his final outcome is what happens but god's not too uh, involved in all of the particulars as long as it can lead to what he finally wants Another verse on God's sovereignty, Psalm 33, verses uh, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart, to all generations. So for the the determinists, for the reformed, we read this as God sovereignly working in all things. The interventionists read this as God intervening. They latch onto an idea of he frustrates the plans of the people. So there's just kind of the normal operation of things going on as they are, and God intervenes as necessary to frustrate their plans. And then when it says the counsel of the Lord stands forever, ultimately his final outcomes will occur, but he wasn't intervening in all of the details. Another common verse on God's sovereignty, Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annoy it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? The interventionist, I mean the reform. The determinists will read this as purpose of all the particulars, every single event in human history. But the interventionists, again, they'll read that word purposed as God's ultimate plans. Now in comparing these two ways of, yeah, go ahead. That's yeah. The, so the interventionist says the ultimate plan of God will be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. What do they, how, do, how do they break that up so it's not like every step along the way? It's, is it the end revelation? Where, where is that? Yeah. No, this, that's a good question, Adam. And I'd say, so I didn't go find, the interventionist is a label I'm using very loosely for, I think, a big category of fuzzy thinking in evangelicalism. People who, they, re, they want to affirm what the Bible says, and they, say, they see that God's ultimate purposes, ultimate plans will prevail. But they're not willing to go to a place of saying that God decrees all things. And so that's the, what you just said is the question to push back on the interventionalist perspective. Well, where does, where does that stop? And what do, how do you break up ultimate purposes versus individual events? Is that kind of what you were asking? Did I understand? So I think it's a fuzzy position, and yes, that is the question that that person has to ask. But a lot of the time, they're not trying to logically think through. And thankfully, they oftentimes don't, info- they thankfully don't follow it logically through to where it will lead. Because I think that's where Sproul's quote becomes helpful. But I think as much as... So I could imagine sitting down and going back and forth with an interventionist on these positions, and they would give their take, a, a reform would take their take on these verses, and you could imagine an entire evening of conversation going back and forth. I'm sure some of you have had these conversations, okay, where you go back and forth on some of these verses. But I think the interventionist be, runs up some verses which all of a sudden become very, very difficult for them to uh, do their gymnastics with. It, because there are verses which their hermeneutical tricks don't seem to really fit anymore. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have a, we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. My notes. So on each of my notes for these verses, I had like the reformed determinist view and then the interventionist view. I just put a question mark next to the interventionist uh, because I don't know what they say to, uh, on this one, okay? Um, I don't know how they get around the all things of Ephesians 1.11. Matthew 10.29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? So here we have an argument from Jesus where we could say from the lesser to the greater. Here we have a very in, insignificant thing: A bird falling dead. I was reading this verse, I think one of my children, and they were like, do birds actually just dive like midair in flight and like fall to the ground? Because I've never seen that. Um, I'm not sure really how birds die. I'm guessing most of the time it's not just mid-flight. <laughs> uh, but... Um, <clears throat> It is kind of, I don't know that that's what Jesus is saying when he says fall to the ground. Does anybody know, do birds ever, like, just die of heart attacks mid-flight and, like, fall out of the sky? Okay, that's not the point, okay? The point here is we have a very, like, something that's easy to just take for granted, a bird, a small bird. A bird that in the temple system would have been uh, sold, or uh, a bird who at that time in history would have been just sold for a copper coin. An insignificant event and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. So if something so insignificant, so trivial, doesn't occur apart from God's will, how much more the greater things of life? Again, I'm not really sure how the interventionists would get around that. In Proverbs 21.1, we have the opposite. Instead of an argument from the lesser to the greater, we have an argument from the greater to the greater. To the lesser, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So this is especially significant in the time where a king oftentimes had absolute authority. If there was anybody who could claim anything close to autonomy, close to a, a kind of will that could not be impeded by an, another human being or any other force, it would be a king. And yet here we see an unqualified statement that God turns the hearts of the king wherever he wishes. Now, I guess an interventionist would probably want to say, well, God's not always doing that, he's just doing it as he needs to to make his ultimate plans accomplished. But I think we have some, ab- and this is just a glimpse into the biblical picture of God being a complete and utterly sovereign God who rules and reigns over all things and decrees all things that come to pass. So here's the question, ultimate question for the interventionist, and it, and it relates, I think, to what Adam was asking there. Where does it stop? Okay, so So if you're saying that God intervenes sometimes, but not all times, where does God's intervention stop? If God intervenes here and there, how much does he have to actually intervene to uh, well, accomplish his purposes? It seems like it would get quite, quite thorough. And if you get to the point where he's intervening, well, he's only intervening 10% of the time, 20% of the time, or 90% of the time, where, where does God's intervention stop? And at the end of the day, what does this actually accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Does that? If you're trying to get off God off the hook for evil or for sin, does, it, does your view actually do that? If you are trying to um, protect God's holiness, does this actually do this? If you're trying to protect human freedom, does the interventionist view actually accomplish these things? I would say no. I don't think that that view actually does what it sets out to accomplish, I think there's a better way. It's the biblical way, the scriptural way. And that is looking at the totality of what Scripture says and trying to uphold and affirm, even when it goes beyond our human ability to comprehend it. So we're going to turn gears here and look at some verses that talk about God's sovereignty over human evil actions. Because this is really where the interventionists get uncomfortable, the idea that God decrees all things. And you're saying, does God actually decree, does God ordain the evil things that come to pass? And this is difficult. And if we stopped a lesson at this, if I finish these verses and the lesson stopped there, I don't think we'd be doing justice to the full biblical picture, because there are certain truths that we have to have bounce one another out but we can't gloss over what the scripture says about God's sovereignty over evil human actions. Isaiah ten five and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So imagine God with a rod in his hand, and he is saying that the Assyrians are the instrument that he is going to use to bring about his punishment and his wrath on his rebellious and sinful people and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. People, this is a difficult passage if you just take a second to imagine the horrors of what the Assyrians would have done. These were a pagan people. These were a brutal people the sheer horror of what would have taken place here and yet God is saying that he is sovereignly ordaining that this takes place that this is his rod in his hand to happen later he's going to say and i'm going to punish them too for what they do those assyrians those assyrians who i said were the rod of my anger the staff in my hand and they will be punished and held accountable for what they did. An even more difficult one. If we, if we are kind of horrified at, the, at the, the brutalities of the warfare and what the Assyrians would have done in these raids, we really need to be horrified at what took place here. Because as horrific as what the Assyrians did, that doesn't even compare... To the murder of the only perfect human who has ever lived. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Listen to the absolute and unqualified terms there of God sovereignly working in this situation, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands. God did it, and yet the people who God sovereignly worked this through are still responsible. You have crucified and put to death. School again with my boys, I was... I going into a topic of discussing this. I asked them, "What is the worst sin that has ever been committed?" And it took quite a while for them to get there. And I said, "The murder of Jesus," and they were like, "Oh!" At the end, how did we miss that? Okay, God was sovereign over that. I don't think we can detach God from it. That the way of getting God off the hook for sin, off the hook for evil, is not by saying that he wasn't sovereign, not by saying that he didn't decree it. So, what is the answer? How do we resolve this? Well, before we talk about the result, we have to talk about whether or not the Bible really does affirm that humans are free. I've already talked about it a little bit in these passages, where we see God both sovereignly working and humans being held responsible. But I think uh, the Bible uh, and our confession also attests to humans truly having freedom, as long as we properly understand what we mean by freedom. So our confession, I quoted this earlier, but it goes on to say or I'll just read the whole thing, God from all eternity did by the, the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. It is that line, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, where I'm going to spend a little bit of time, here. But uh, the Confession actually has an entire chapter on free will. For those of you who didn't know that, chapter 9 of the Confession is that. So if people say, oh, you're a Calvinist, you don't believe in free will. So well, my confessional statement actually has an entire chapter on this topic. But it is free a definition and an understanding of free will. That's not necessarily what other evangelicals might believe when they say free will. But here's how that chapter opens. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. In some just there is a sense in which humans truly do make decisions. And if your mind is saying, wait, wait, how does that work with everything that you've already talked about, God decreeing all things? Well, just hang tight. Let's see what... Scripture says, does Scripture actually teach that humans make decisions? Well, Jesus in Matthew 17, 12 says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And this is just one small example where uh, we see the Scripture talking about people actually making decisions. People uh, choosing uh, between two things, and actually being responsible for their actions. Um, now, humans are bound by sinful nature. Okay, so that's going to come into it later on. But the, just the idea of actually making true decisions is something that's implied throughout the ent- entire Bible. So let's go back even in, as early as Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. My point in in quoting something early in the Bible is that the Bible throughout speaks as though humans make real, authentic decisions. We should not read this verse as though when Eve chose to eat that way that it was God making her do it you say wait but didn't you spend the whole first half of the lesson saying that God is sovereign and decrees all things to happen yes but I I said let's just pause for a second and look how the Bible talks because the Bible also talks about people making free decisions if there's a little bit of tension there that's okay just live with it for a little bit I'll just be honest. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of resolution, other than at the end, other than saying, if the Bible says it, we must believe it. Okay. So let's just see it. What does? How does the Bible speak about humans? Do we make decisions, genuine, true, and decisions, or are we merely mechanical robots who are just following the path, uh, just doing merely what God has decreed that we do? Deuteronomy. Thirty fifteen through sixteen. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go possess. The Bible constantly gives commands and presents them to people as though they have a choice. Now, it is implied in this. And we know, again, because of our our view that no no human will be able to live, uh, to resist sin apart from the Holy Spirit, that that doesn't change the fact that Scripture talks to people as though they have genuine and true ability to make choices. I'm not going to read the whole Joshua passage for time, but notice we have here, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. The Bible does uphold the idea that humans make choices choices back to jesus in matthew twelve thirty five. a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasures bring forth evil things now at this point in time there's a temptation to get a bit philosophical in talking about the human will okay what is a will and what does that mean why do we make the decisions that we make and I don't want to get bogged down in the, in the conversation about the human will and some of the philosophy behind that. But I, I think uh, what we see right here is that humans make true decisions, but true decisions that are in accordance with their desires, true decisions that are in accordance with their nature. So while it is true that people make true decisions, a sinful, unregenerate person will never choose God. A sinful, unregenerate person will never be able to turn away from sin, no matter what direction they turn. Even if they turn from this sin, say they turn away from a destructive alcoholism that is destroying their family and destroying their life, they might be able to stop doing that sin, but only to turn to another sin. They might stop that sin, but only to turn to another sin. Whereas a believer who has a renewed nature actually has the ability to turn from sin into righteousness. And that is really the life of the believer is constantly turning away from the sins that are in our life and more and more turning to righteousness and letting the righteousness of Christ consume our life. So yes, humans make true decisions that are in accordance with their natures. Bridges summarized some of what I've been saying here in the following words. God is able and does move upon the hearts and minds of people to accomplish his purposes. And I will say, if I didn't know better, sometimes I would question whether or not Bridges holds to a more interventionist view, because some of the language he uses sounds like that at times. But I think if you read him closely and consistently, you see that he holds a consistent reform determinist view. God is able and does move upon the hearts and minds of people to accomplish his purposes, yet it also seems equally clear from Scripture that God does this without violating or coercing their wills, but rather that he works in his mysterious way through their wills to accomplish his purposes. Going to skip ahead. So there are some passages in Scripture where we looked at, well, rewind. We spent some time looking at God's sovereignty, Over all things, even over sinful human actions. We spent time looking at people making true choices. And there are also passages in Scripture where we see both happening side by side, clear affirmations of God's complete sovereignty in a situation, side by side with humans making true and sincere decisions. So the question of the day are they compatible? God's sovereignty, human freedom. The answer is, they have to be. And why do they have to be? Because Scripture upholds them both. Scripture shows that God is supremely sovereign and decrees all things which come to pass. Scripture also says that humans make true decisions and that they are responsible for those decisions. Uh, philosophers call this position compatibilism. and uh, But I think the, the thing I'd like to close with is or wrap up with, is saying that if we're going to talk about these two realities, just you have to hold them side by side. Scripture upholds them both. But how do they work side by side? You don't have to know. You just have to believe what Scripture says. Does that create some intellectual discomfort? For me, it does at times. I get thinking about it. God is in control, but we're responsible. We make real decisions, but God is decreeing it. Sounds confusing. Are we anti-intellectual? I would say not. I'd say that it means that there are... We have to realize that there are some aspects of reality which are beyond human comprehension. Unbelievers know this. Unbelievers know that there are certain things that are beyond human comprehension. And we have to recognize that too, especially if we believe that there is a a God who is holy and righteous and far beyond us. So the conversation around sovereignty and human freedom really needs to be hedged in by some important qualifications of other things that scripture affirms. And that God is infinite and beyond us in his ways and in his being. Part of the difficulty here is we think of God like a human. So if I came up to Zane right now, grabbed his arm and smacked Darius across the face with his arm, and I said, Zane, why did you do that? He said, well, you made me do it, okay? I don't think that Zane in that situation would be responsible for having just smacked Darius in the face. Now, Zane's probably more buff than I am, so maybe an argument could be made that he could have resisted it, and that that he holds a certain level of culpability in not trying harder to prevent me from doing that, okay? But we see that when I cause, as a human, cause Zane to do something, I become responsible for that. And I think that's the kind of thinking we're oftentimes imposing on God. When we say that God decrees all things, we're thinking of him as a human, not as the God and creator of all things. But we remember that God is in a completely other different category. And we talk about him decreeing all things. That's very different than saying a human makes another human do something. So that's one of the things we have to hedge this in with, is that remembering that God is infinitely beyond us in his ways and his being. We also have to remember and affirm without qualification that God is not the author of sin. There is no evil in God. God himself does not sin. God himself cannot sin. So there is a true sense in which God can decree sinful actions without being responsible for that or sinning himself. And again, this is just being consistent with how the Scripture speaks and affirming the things that Scripture upholds. And the third thing that we need to hedge this in with is that people can make real choices, which we've already spent a bit of time talking about. I think if we remove any of these pieces in the discussion of God's sovereignty and human freedom, we do start drifting into dangerous territory. So it is very careful if you're talking with another believer or even an unbeliever. I mean, I've had these conversations with unbeliever who ask questions, and I don't try to protect God. I try to uh, just faithfully say what I believe that the Scriptures teach. Now, that it becomes hard for someone who doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture to grasp this. They say it sounds like nonsense. But it's an opportunity for you to testify to a high view of Scripture. And to demonstrate to another person that the Scripture is your ultimate authority. And for you to say, well, I I see Scripture teaches this, I see Scripture teaches that, and I see Scripture teaches this. Right now, I can't perfectly reconcile and explain every one of those to you, but I know that I believe in a holy, righteous, good, and faithful God, and that all these things are true. Um, Just... We're over time. Just a couple points of application, though. Um, I think, again, what, one of what I, what I just said there is it's an opportunity to testify to our belief in Scripture, in the authority of Scripture, in the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, I think it's also really important when we're talking to people who suffer, who've experienced hardship in life, who've experienced and come face to face with true evil, That we're faithful to the whole of what Scripture says. That we can both say to that person that God hates that evil action that was done against you. And that it is wicked, and that whoever the perpetrator is will one day face judgment unless he finds redemption in Christ. But also affirm that God's in control of all things, and God is able to work all things to the counsel of His will and for your good and that didn't happen by divine oversight or that some event happened to escape God's sovereign rule that was part of God's sovereign plan that God in a sense actually decreed it from eternity past that it happened that way so I will close there no questions intentionally did that Let us pray. Merciful God, we know that you are holy, righteous, and good. Father, we know actually that only you are perfectly holy and perfectly good. And I pray that if nothing else, as we consider the truths of what your word holds, that you will have been lifted up high in our hearts and our minds this morning. Remember that you are absolutely in control and that your ways are beyond our ways. Not forgetting that there will be a day where every evil act that has ever taken place will be taken into account and judged, either being atoned for in the blood of your Son or being having the eternal consequence of hell uh, as a just punishment for that sin. Father, we thank you that we can rest in the authority and truth of your Scripture, and I pray that that's exactly what we would do today. And that our hearts and minds would be prepared to worship you with your people this morning as well. We pray this all in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said,